Hi, it's Mike here again. I'm really glad to be back with you this week to continue my talk on repentance. I'm going to give you a brief overview of what I'm going to be covering in this session. We're going to look at basically four or five points on repentance, trying to look at a more practical aspect of it. The first thing is I'm going to look at myths versus meaning when it comes to repentance and cover about nine different points there. And then I'm going to, I decided to tackle this really difficult theological concept and it was a bit like opening a can of worms, but the whole idea of Christian perfection, you know, can we be perfect now or is it only then? And there's different ways of seeing us in the church and that affects how you see repentance. And then I'm going to look at a, a lifestyle of repentance and also including what to do when there are some strongholds in your life and finishing off with the benefits of repentance. So last week we looked at repentance and that it basically is metanoia in the New Testament. And it really means a change of mind, um, coming into a totally different way of thinking, which means changing everything about you, your heart and your behavior, your orientation, and that it's actually not a once-off thing. It's an ongoing thing. When we see it's to do with the change of your mind, then obviously as you keep growing in knowledge, you keep repenting because your mind gets changed and expanded as your faith grows, as your understanding grows. So let's kick off with just looking at those myths versus meaning in repentance. I'm going to quickly cover nine different points here. So the first thing about a myth is, is that like when you're repenting, you're earning your salvation or getting born again, again. And I know that when I was a new Christian, sometimes you, you, you were tempted to be baptized again. You were, you, you were tempted to go through the sinner's prayer again and again because you kept sinning and, and you thought, am I not saved? And that's not what repentance is. That repentance unto salvation is a one-time thing. And when it's done, it's done. Jesus does it. It's interesting in John 13 where he wants to wash the disciples' feet. And Simon Peter says, no, you, you, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And Peter says, no, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you're clean, though not every one of you. So he was saying, you guys are saved, not Judas. He's not saved. But you don't need to go and get saved all over again. But as you walk in this world, your feet get dusty. And you're going to have to have a lifestyle of washing your feet. In other words, a lifestyle of repentance. And in John 15, in the parable of the vine and the branches, Jesus is saying that I'm the true vine. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So there's an ongoing process. And then he says this thing. He says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So that is a done, accomplished fact. And the Bible does talk about us being impregnated with the word, with the logos. And, and that is being born again. So we don't have to get saved again and again. But we have to get transformed. We have to constantly grow into becoming what we are. And that's why... It says, for example, in 2 Peter, he says, he's encouraging them, keep adding to faith, knowledge, and goodness, and keep going. And he says this, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. And that word confirm is just to make it stable, to make it strong. So the second myth about repentance is that it's kind of like a morbid introspection. 
and it's about navel gazing and, and, and trying to fix yourself. And that's not what it is. And then we go to the other extreme where we, don't, we think we don't need to give it a second thought. And we just have a blanket prayer when we get saved. Lord, thank you, save, um, forgive all my sins. Or we just generally pray throughout the day, Lord, forgive me for any sins I, might have, I may have. And those are two extremes. So it's not morbid, but it's about dealing with that fifth column that's in you that we mentioned last week, about dealing with, with the enemy that's still within. I remember once one of my, someone came to me for pastoral care and they said they'd been to someone, they had this, this issue, this sexual issue in their family, and, and the pastor said, don't open that can of worms. And what happened to this guy, he took his advice, and later on he had such trouble, almost totally ruined his life. And the fact is, if you don't open that can of worms, the devil's going to open up at the right time. So we do have to keep checking ourselves, but it's not this constant morbid introspection. It's kind of a balanced approach. Paul perfectly exemplifies this balance. In 1 Corinthians 4, he's he's not navel-gazing or morbid. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So Paul's quite secure, and he's not going to get all over-worried about his state. But it would be wrong to take this verse to say that we never examine ourselves, because when he's talking to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he encourages them, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So here again, we see a constant tension and balance in Scripture. Now, a third aspect of a false understanding of repentance is that repentance simply means feeling sorry. Now, a lot of people, when they get caught in a sin, they feel terrible, but they're not really repenting. They just feel bad that their life's out of control or that they're heading for trouble or that they've finally been exposed, and that's not really repentance. And in Joel 2, verse 12 to 13, it says, God says, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. So repentance is, is when you really have understood in your heart what you've done and the consequence of that. And one of the clues that you haven't really repented is when you're still using defensive language. I did this, but you also do it. Or I did this, but you know I was under pressure. You, you, you're not really at that place of true repentance. And you can't actually get to that place unless God gives you the grace. A uh, fourth thing that is similar is that it's like kind of self-preservation. So you're doing repentant kind of things, but you're actually ducking and diving, trying to save your own skin. And if you weren't in danger, you wouldn't be repenting. A fifth kind of misunderstanding is, is treating it as a religious activity. I remember I was brought up in the Catholic Church and we would do our confessional, and that didn't necessarily mean I was really repenting from the heart. And we, we don't have to belong to a traditional church. You could just do mindless prayers. Oh God, forgive me for anything I've done today. And it's still an external religious activity. Another aspect is where we think that repentance eliminates the consequences. And by repenting, there's going to be no negative consequences. And this unfortunately is not true. The most classic example in the Old Testament is David. And he repented for his sin of adultery and 
murder with Bathsheba and her husband, and he still had the consequences of that sin reverberating throughout his kingdom. And if you, if you study that story, you'll see that. I'm not going to go into that there. And, and we see an example in the New Testament where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and they're really not doing the Lord's Supper and the love feasts in a correct way. They're not respecting each other. And Paul says, you know, you're drinking and eating judgment on yourselves. And in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, That's why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, they've died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So there are consequences, but there's always grace right there with it. He goes on in verse 32. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So another point is that when there's true repentance, you are dealing with the greatest commands which is the command of love. We know Jesus explained very clearly what is the greatest command, what's the heart of Scripture, what's the most important thing. And in Mark 12, 30-31, he said, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like that, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So if these are the true meaning of spirituality of the gospel, then it makes sense that repentance has to do with this. When you really repent, you are repenting before a holy God for having grieved him for your sin and rebellion. And related to that, you're also repenting for the way your sin has hurt other people. And it's not about self-preservation. It's not about a self-focus. It is honestly about what you have done to your relationship, starting with God and then looking at your neighbor and all your relationships. And that is not in our power to do. When you get that kind of real repentance, you know that the Holy Spirit has been at work and has granted you that repentance. Another aspect of repentance is a false understanding, is that we just can pick and choose and be sorry about certain things and hide other things. When God's repentance comes, we hide nothing. And we lay all our cards on the table. We expose everything. Because repentance is about moving away from your human control and manipulation and goals, turning to God, and you open yourself up to God. And when you turn to God, you know that you're turning to the Almighty One, the One who sees all things, the One who cannot be deceived. And He, he, he sees everything you do. So when there's real repentance, you're going to expose everything. And you don't just look at surface things, you look at the heart. You don't just choose certain sins. And you don't just look at what, you do, what you've done, you look at what you haven't done. I mean, there are many scriptures that talk about this. So if we look at Proverbs 18.9, it's interesting. It says, one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. So when you repent, you're suddenly aware of not just what you've done, but what you haven't done. And in James 4.17, it says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. So it's not just obvious things you've done, it's just sins of omission, things you've failed to do. And the final point I want to mention about repentance before I go into the next section is that you need to work with your conscience when you're doing repentance. And work with has got a double meaning, and I mean both of those meanings. So when, when I say you must work with your conscience, it means you must work with it in its current state. 
Your conscience may be oversensitive or undersensitive and not accurately aligned to God's truth. So you might be feeling bad about doing something that's not actually a sin, but you're just ignorant. Or you might not feel bad about something, and you should feel bad because it is a sin. But basically, you work with your conscience in its current state. And the other sense of working with it, you work with it to make it shift to a better state. As you grow in knowledge, as you keep repenting, your conscience gets healed and it stops being over or undersensitive. And we can see how scripture says you must um, follow your conscience and then you must heal it over time. So in Hebrews 10, 22, it says, Let us draw near to God with a, with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So we go to God to deal with our conscience. And Paul in, in Corinthians, he, he shows how you must respect the state of people's conscience until they mature. When he's talking about eating food to idols, and he says, look, this food, there's no real power in it. But then he says in verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So that's the final point about repentance. We must work with our conscience. I'm going to go into the next section now, which is quite a, a theologically disputed thing, but I'm going to deal with it because it's so critical to repentance. And the question is, it's a question we ask and disagree about in the church, is can a Christian reach a state where they kind of don't sin anymore? Or are we bound to be living a life where in the week we fill up our sin bucket and then we come to church on the weekend and we cleansed on the Sunday and then we go back into the week and it's an ongoing pattern. And this is really our lot until we get our resurrection bodies. How much can we really expect? I mean, what is the standard? What are we really accountable for? When are we being legalistic and when are we succumbing to cheap grace? It's actually really a separate topic for a future talk, but I, I, I must deal with it because it so directly impacts the issue of repentance. And a lot of Christians are a bit unclear about this. So there, there's a very key verse, very key chapters in the Bible are Romans 1 to 8. You really find everything about your, your foundation for salvation and, and repentance and discipleship there. But if you read Romans 7 and Romans 8, there's a kind of a different emphasis, and people disagree about how these things are related. So when we read Romans 7, we see Paul describing himself in Romans 7, 14 to 19. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now depending on where you stand on this issue, you will be a Christian and you'll say, wow, I feel such comfort there because what I'm experiencing, Paul experienced, and I feel comfort. And then you may be on the other side and saying, no, 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 this is not describing Paul as a Christian. This, Paul is just talking in the present, but about his past Christian life. And there's a dispute there. And the way you see it affects how you relate to yourself and what you expect from yourself and what you think God expects from you as you live out your Christian walk. 
Now, both sides on the issue will know Romans 8, 1 to 4, which is a much more victorious sounding part in the next chapter. And it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So Romans 7 emphasizes the struggle and Romans 8 the victory. And the issue is not that either of these groups don't see both chapters and, and agree on both chapters. It's the emphasis and the sense of timing that is accorded to Romans 7 versus Romans 8. Now, if you are more in the triumphant positive confession group or you have more theology of glory, a realized theology, meaning that the future kingdom is realized, it's already happening now, you will definitely see Romans 7 as describing Paul's past life and it being completely inappropriate to suggest Paul was using it to describe any of his present struggles. Romans 8, the victorious part, becomes the normal Christian walk and Romans 7 becomes your past life. Or if you ever experience that, you it's a, a real aberration, a complete backsliding. But now if you fall more into the other group, the more of the, the grace group, you will see Romans 7 as the normal experience of Christians on their way to maturity. And Romans 8, with its victory, more as a promise that you do experience now in a deposit form, but you will only fully realize it when you get your resurrection body. And it's, it's really, it's, it becomes quite a disputed thing. You could see a similar tension in 1 John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 2. And if you read 1 John chapter 1, it sounds much more like the we are still struggling with our sin part. And I'm going to read it. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now this goes straight, that's the end of 1 John chapter 1, it goes straight into the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. And now this is much more focused on victory. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And again, you can emphasize Romans 7 and 1 John 1, or you can emphasize Romans 8 and 1 John 2. And the fact is we're not allowed to choose one at the expense of the other. I think the problem occurs when we insist on reducing the tensions and mysteries in Scripture to categories that we can understand and control. 
And we're going to go further into that in the third session. So as we were talking about reducing the mysteries of Scripture, I think an, an analogy is when we want to have our fruit packaged and canned, and we want to have preservatives and a long shelf life. We have all our doctrine very neatly stacked, and any time we want something, we know where it is and we go get it, and it's, it's got a long shelf life. But actually, the Word of God is living and active. It exists in living, not a canned formed. And we are called to work with a complex living orchard. It's like, like working with an orchard of trees. And you have to keep returning to the Word. You have to keep checking. You have to keep interacting with it. And you have to keep engaging with the seasons in your life and the Word responding to those seasons. So we must be careful here. We mustn't say it's a mystery and it's a paradox in attention. Until we've looked at all of the scriptures, until we've personally and worshipfully struggled with the scriptures, like Jacob wrestling with God in the Old Testament, or, and we've worked in a careful and nuanced systematic fashion, like Solomon building the temple, according to clear instructions, we need to do both of those things. And so let's look at what the scripture clearly seems to say. It does seem clear that the declaration of our new identity in Christ with a genuine new nature is a solid biblical fact. That we can build on. It is a done, accomplished thing. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. And in Ephesians 2.6, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 6, it's just declaring that we are dead to sin. The old man has died. It says in Romans 6 verse 3 to 11, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And in verse 6 it says, We know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So, it seems quite clear. We are new creation. We shouldn't be sinning at all. However, there's an equally impressive number of scriptures that can be marshaled to show that this reality is not something that we easily or even absolutely consistently are able to live up to. And I've yet to find someone who can say they have consistently through their whole life. In Romans 8, 22-25, it says this, it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And in Paul in Philippians 3, 12 to 14 says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For we know that, the, that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, 
we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed. Instead, with our heavenly dwelling, so that we may, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And so we see a tension between victory and struggle. Now, if you want to defend the victorious emphasis, you will say, yes, but none of these verses of struggle have to do with sin. They have to do with persecution or living in this fallen world. And I'm afraid I don't see in Scripture where it makes a neat demarcation between our struggle and weakness being only of one kind and not of another. We are a unified being, and we struggle in every area. And we have a promise and a victory in every area. And I think working out your salvation involves all aspects of this. So when we look at the Scripture, it really does seem that there is one salvation one type of Christian, one calling. It says there's one body, one spirit, one baptism. And you could easily then be tempted to say, well, let's have one message. It's victory and sinlessness. And the other side says, no, let's have one message. It's struggle and grace until we get our resurrection bodies. Well, there is one salvation, one Christianity, one standard. That's for sure. But there's definitely not one kind of response. If you read the scripture, you see Paul and all the apostles and the whole scripture, all the prophets, they are dealing with people with different responses. And that one gospel appropriately deals with all of them. There's a recognition that people are in different stages. They have different contexts. And they just have different wills. Some people choose never to come to Christ. They choose to reject him forever. And they, it, the Bible says they perish because they refuse to believe. It says that in Thessalonians. And in Romans, it says the Jews will come if they don't persist in their unbelief. So there's an accountability. Some people just say no. And there are Christians who, who struggle and they don't commit fully. And they are Christians. Paul says in, in Corinthians 1 Corinthians 3, be careful how you build. You know, if you build with wood, hay, and straw, you're going to be saved. But like through the fire <laughs> with smoke and, and cinders... <laughs> But you'll suffer loss. And then there are others who build with, with gold and, and precious stones and silver. And so th there are different responses, even though there's one gospel, one calling. So we have to avoid compromising or collapsing the full gospel and the full message of repentance. And where we only trying to accommodate one kind of response. There's one high calling, but it's given with grace and understanding and patience. We must preach the full gospel in all its tensions, with all its warnings, with all its encouragements and all its promises. And so we, 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 when Paul's talking to, to Timothy, he gives him a strong challenge. He says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ. This is in 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 to 6. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown, except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. But yet Paul, when he's talking to the whole church, and 
is, is giving instructions of how to relate to people, he says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. So we're not allowed to just present one super victorious, motivating gospel, all be soldiers and straight away, nor a kind of a grace, weak gospel saying, it's okay, stay in hospital for the rest of your Christian walk. We just have to go to the scripture and correctly interpret it as it exists and not tinker with the gospel, not tweak it. And I think we get this tension if we go look at Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 7, in chapter 7, verse 16 to 18. It says this, Do not be overrighteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be overwicked. Do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. I think if we present this full gospel, it will increase the likelihood of the following positive outcomes. Let's say, imagine a person, if if this person is a part of a church but is not genuinely converted, and you don't tinker with the gospel, but you just preach the gospel in its light and its shade, in its hard parts and in its very gentle parts. I mean, Romans 9 to 11, it says, consider the kindness and the severity of God. It says, consider both. And if you're there in a church and you're not really converted, but you're hearing the full gospel, there's a chance that you will have false assurance removed and be convicted by the Holy Spirit and genuinely repent and be saved. Similarly, if you're a new Christian and you're shaking your foundations, or if you're an older Christian who's grown compromised and you're hearing this full gospel, you'll be encouraged to make your calling and election sure, as it says in 2 Peter 1.10. That word sure is just to make it stable, steadfast. Sure. And if you are a genuine Christian who is going for it, you will receive the encouragement and the appropriate levels of warning and encouragement to keep going and persevering in humility, yet staying watchful. So in the last section now, I'm just going to talk a bit about once we accept that repentance is a change of mind, that it's an ongoing thing, that we mustn't go to the left or the right, but we must deal with all of God's truth. We can look at a lifestyle of repentance and the benefits of repentance. So if we consider a lifestyle of repentance, sometimes in, as, a, as the Christian church or in the New Covenant, we, we lose some of the benefits that existed for the Jews. They had um, the festivals and there were festivals of celebration, and there was the Day of Atonement, a festival, a structured time of repentance. And so it can be useful to make it part of your lifestyle. So a lifestyle of repentance involves certain things. It involves reading all of Scripture, not just Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, but Psalm 51 of repentance, not just Proverbs, which is promises of how really if you do it, you're going to be prosperous and successful, but also Job, where there's suffering and it doesn't always make sense. You read all of Scripture. You don't just read the Psalms of praise. You read the Psalms of lament. You have a balanced diet. And that's part of a lifestyle of repentance. You make sure, number one, that you you set aside quality time with God. And if you're not, repent. (laughs) That's the first thing. If you're not having regular time with God, it doesn't have to be every day. It doesn't have to be at a specific time. But you have to show 
your commitment to God by setting aside time. And if you're not, it means that you have a belief that it's not important or that you can short-circuit it. And that is a false belief which you have to repent of. And once you do commit to making that time with God and stop making excuses, you make it part of what you do in that time with God. You know, it's easy to set aside time with God and just read scripture or just listen to worship music and forget to just set aside time to examine your heart and ask the Holy Spirit. So it becomes part of your lifestyle. And you can engage with with Sabbaths and with fasting throughout the year. Um, if we also read the Lord's Prayer, we can see that repentance is worked into, into the Lord's Prayer, our Father. It says, forgive us our sins. And if we really unpack it, it won't be a quick running through it. It'll be a process and giving the time. We can read Psalm 139 at the end where David says, examine my heart. And one of the things about repentance and making it a lifestyle is to keep very short accounts. When you really get your relationship with God to a place of grace and mature understanding, it'll be easy because you, you, you won't want to have anything hidden. And it will be because it's grace, you'll immediately repent of something. You'll have a little thought that comes into your mind and you'll, you'll uproot it straight away. There's a verse that says, capture every thought and submit it to the will of God. You, you will start to train your mind where you become aware of what you're thinking. And then you, you, you keep bringing those thoughts into the light and saying, is this your will? Is this the kind of thought you would have, Jesus? Is this what you would be looking at? Is this how you would respond? And it's not law. It's not trying to earn your salvation. It's understanding who you are in Christ and saying, this is not who I am. This is beneath me. And I don't want to do this anymore. And so that's what it really means to keep a short account. I think we can, when you have a good relationship, like a good marriage or a a good couple that is is really intimate, they'll very quickly pick up if there's something wrong or whereas if you've got a stale old relationship, there can be so much stuff happening and you don't even notice it anymore. So I just want to mention an issue of what happens when there's a stronghold. Um, you might come into your Christian faith with a stronghold, with what the world calls addictions, but it can be a bondage. It can be linked to emotional hurts. It can be linked to um, unrep- like very a whole lot of false beliefs, demonic oppression, and things like that. Or, or just you've built up neurological patterns, which is like a, a highway of a certain pattern of thinking. And how do you, what does repentance mean in that area? And I want to suggest that keeping a short account and dealing with the big repentance in the area of stronghold, they go hand in hand. So an example of this of the stronghold is in Galatians 6, where it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Paul in Corinthians, he says, I will beat my body and make it my slave so that after I finish preaching to others, I'm not disqualified for the prize. So your body is a fantastic slave. It serves you so well in God's design, but it's a terrible master. If you let your body become the master, it's going to make you miserable. And really, if there is an area where you're struggling, where there's a stronghold, there's a whole lot of teaching and things that God has shown in the scriptures and in the church. We're not going to go into that. But the whole idea is that you need to be free of that. Because you're never going to walk in your fullness and your freedom. And there's a verse in Proverbs 6 which demonstrates the urgency we should have with regard to this. 
It's not talking about it. It's talking about um, a pledge, a financial pledge where you become trapped. But I think the urgency that is a, that is talked about there is the kind of urgency we should have for any kind of entrapment and personal sin or bondage. And in Proverbs 6, 1 to 5, it says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself. Since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. And if we have certain areas in our lives which are a real problem, we should, we should ask God to give us this urgency and this faith and this hope and this security in his love and security in our identity to do warfare against this and to come to complete freedom. And then the little repentance where we're just catching every little thought and keeping our, washing our feet and keeping it constantly clean, the sweetness of our relationship with God, goes hand in hand with this big repentance. When you have something like that, you need to face it full on with God and say, I'm going to change this. I'm going to repent of this deep behavior. And if you do that, you will still need to keep your heart clean and keep short accounts. And the two go together. You can't do one without the other. You can't just get deliverance from a big sin and not do the ongoing short account with God. And if you have this big sin and you're doing this ongoing short account, you're going to give into that sin. You need to do both. Hand in hand. I'm going to finish off now with quickly mentioning the benefits of repentance. And I'm going to do that with two quotes. One from Dallas Willard and one from A.W. Tozer. And they were both uh, Christian writers and, and theologians and pastors who really had a deep love for the church and for God, and for the Word of God, and they really wanted to see Christians walk in fullness and freedom. And I'm going to start with this quote from Dallas Willard from his book, The Greater Mission. Dallas says, In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave the world his book, The Cost of Discipleship. It was a masterful attack on easy Christianity or cheap grace in the context of mid-20th century Europe and America. But it did not succeed in setting aside, perhaps it even reinforced, the view of discipleship as a costly spiritual excess, and only for those especially driven or called to it. It was right and good of Bonhoeffer to point out that one cannot be a disciple of Christ without forfeiting things normally sought in human life, and that one who pays little in the world's coinage to bear his name has reason to wonder whether he or she, where, where he or she stands with God. And this is the key. But the cost of non-discipleship. And just an aside here, for me, repentance and discipleship, when you look at it, and the renewing of the mind, they all go together. They're all similar. It's saying the same thing. The cost of discipleship, the cost of repentance, is far greater of non-discipleship. Even when this life alone is considered, it's a greater price than the price paid to walk with Jesus, constantly learning from Him. Non-discipleship, Costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right, 
and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship, and I would add in there a non-repentant lifestyle, costs you exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring in John 10.10. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. And Toza writes this. There are two kinds of lives, the fellow and the plowed. Miracles follow the plow. Paul was a better man for his thorn. Why do some persons find God in a way that others do not? God has no favorites within his household. The difference lies not with God but with us. I venture to suggest that the one vital quality which the great saints had in common was spiritual receptivity. They differed from the average person in that when they felt inward longing, they did something about it. They acquired the, life, the lifelong habit of spiritual response. Receptivity can be present in degrees depending upon the individual. It may be increased by exercise or destroyed by neglect. It is not a sovereign and irresistible force which comes upon us as a seizure from above. It is a gift of God, indeed, but one which must be recognized and cultivated. Failure to see this is the cause of a very serious breakdown in modern evangelicalism. We now demand glamour and fast-flowing dramatic action. We have been trying to apply machine-age methods to our relations with God. We read one chapter, have our short devotions and rush away, hoping to make up for our deep inward bankruptcy by attending another gospel meeting. Or, the tragic results of this spirit are all about us. It will require a determined heart and more than a little courage to wrench ourselves loose from the grip of our times and return to biblical ways. I'm going to pray for you now. Father God, thank you so much for your love and your grace. Thank you for creating us in love and pouring out your abundance and your goodness. Forgive us, Lord, where we have sinned and strayed. And your word says each of us like sheep have gone our own separate ways. And we thank you, Father, that you sent Christ and you laid on Christ all our sins. Forgive us, Father, where we have taken the salvation lightly and we have treated it as just one more element in our lives when in fact it needs to be the heart of our lives and we need to give our whole being to you in joyful sacrifice. And we know that as we do this, we will find life. Jesus, you said if we lose our lives, we will find them. But if we try to keep them, we will lose them. Forgive us, Lord where we have not lived up to your grace. We have not lived up to your gifts. Forgive us where we have had false ways of thinking. Forgive us where we have not recognized that we are a new creation in you and we have not received that gift humbly and just rejoiced and accepted who you've made us to be. Forgive us when we've seen each other in a wrong way and we've seen others beneath us or above us and we've seen ourselves above other people or beneath them, whereas you've said, do not call anyone father because you have one father and you are all brothers and sisters. 
Forgive us for that. And forgive us where we have not seen you as you really are. We're deep in our hearts. We have not really believed and trusted in your goodness. And like that servant who hid the one talent, he says, I knew you were a harsh person. And that it was just a false thing, a false belief that he had to repent of. So we repent, Lord, of our ways and of our thoughts. And we, we wish to come to you and we say, grant us, grant your whole church, Lord, repentance. And renew our minds, purify our hearts, and strengthen us in our bodies to live for you, to live in the power of your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.